This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Romans 3, verses 21 to 31. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented himself, him, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? Is it excluded? On what principle? It is excluded. (laughs) On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I want to thank you very much for having me to here to preach today. It's great to worship with you and to see many familiar faces. And it's nice to uh, hear the real thing ex- instead of the thumping from downstairs below. So it's nice to be here and know what's going on. So thanks for having me. Um, Todd has asked me to preach on Romans 3, uh, verse 21 to 31. But since it's such an important text... He's decided to preach on the same text next week as well. So I know the general direction that he will be going with his sermon. So I've decided to focus on verses 27 to 31 of chapter 3, zeroing in on some of the themes that Todd won't be spending as much time on. And hopefully I'll set him up a little bit for next week. Before we begin, let's just have a word of prayer. Holy Father, by your Holy Spirit, may we see you and your glory and your holiness and your love through the pages of Scripture. And ultimately, Holy Spirit, show us Jesus and the good news that is found in him. We ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Paul's letter to the Romans was one of the most important texts of the Protestant Reformation. In the 16th century, the Reformers began to see the medieval Catholic penitential system as the embodiment of a kind of works righteousness. To the Reformers, the Roman teaching on merit, purgatory, indulgences, and penance amounted to salvation by works or salvation by the obedience to the laws of the church. Naturally, when they opened the book of Romans and read, sometimes for the first time, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, 
They read it into their own context, and the Protestant Reformation was born. And rightly so. The church needed reformation. But one of the results of this is that we Protestants have been reading the book of Romans over the shoulders of the reformers, so to speak, since the 16th century. And the primary question of the Reformation, giving that Catholic context, was, how can I be saved? Naturally, the Reformers read and interpreted Romans primarily in light of that single question. And of course, Romans has a great deal to say on that question. But of course, Paul did not have the alleged errors of medieval Catholicism in mind when he wrote his letter to the church in Rome. One of the things that Paul was thinking about was the tension between Jews and Gentiles in this new group of Jesus followers called the church. Perhaps the question Paul was trying to answer in his letter was not a 16th century one, but a 1st century one, namely, how is this new church going to function with both Jews and Gentiles in it? And that leads us into another question, Given this church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, what is the place of the Torah or the Jewish law in the life of the church? These are the questions we're going to focus on this morning. Just some light, casual stuff. First, a brief recap on the letter in light of these questions. In chapter 1, Paul begins to tell of how the wrath of God is being revealed against the peoples of the earth or the Gentiles. Even though God had revealed himself both in creation and in the human conscience, the Gentiles did not honor God and instead created and worshipped idols made in the likeness of men and animals. Because of this, God gave them over to all kinds of impurity and every type of sin under the sun. Paul enumerates these, saying they were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now at this point in the letter, the Jews are feeling pretty darn good about themselves. There are lots of amens coming from the Jewish corner at this point. They're saying, we knew it. Those Gentiles are vile. But we are special. We're the chosen people. We have the patriarchs. We have Abraham as our father. We have the law given directly from God to Moses. We have the prophets. We have priesthood and temple and sacrifice. Clearly, we're the first class citizens here. Okay, the Gentiles can be a part of this church, but we're not going to do anything crazy like eat with them. Now, I should mention that the Gentiles didn't have much love for the Jews either. The Gentiles living in Rome could boast of having the very best of Greco-Roman culture. They were civilized. They had Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. These were real philosophers, not some scraggly backwater prophets in the desert wearing beards and camel skins. They had Cicero. The Romans had the finest Greco-Roman sculpture, poetry, music, theater, rhetoric, They had grand architecture. To them, the Jews were a rustic, uncivilized people. But somehow, they were still boasting. Why? Because they had the law. 
And at the end of chapter 1 of Romans, the, jo- the Jews, the Jews, <laughs> the Jews were boasting. But then in chapter 2 hits, and Paul takes his cannons and moves them from aiming at the Gentiles to aiming directly at the Jews and brings out this whopper of a quote from Isaiah. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Oh, whoa. Paul then goes on to say to the Jews, you have the law, but you don't keep it. Yes, you have circumcision, but you break the law, so your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's invalidated. He then enumerates the sins of the Jews and says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. He even turns the blade a little and says that even though the Gentiles don't have the law, they sometimes do a better job at obeying because of their conscience than the Jews do. Ouch. And in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says, What then, are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Finally, just before we get to our text, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. So Paul has now silenced both Jew and Gentile, saying that both of them are in very hot water, and no amount of striving to obey the law can make any of them right with God. This is a pretty rough situation. What can be done about this? (laughs) Aha! Now we get to our text for today, the good news. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, talking about Jews and Gentiles, for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I'm going to leave it to Todd to do an exposition of that amazing text next week. But for our topic today, here's what we need to know. God does not show favoritism. God does not justify or accept people based on their observance of the law or their ethnicity or their heritage or their Jewishness or their Gentileness or by the observance of certain traditions. The only basis for God's acceptance of a person is his or her faith in Jesus Christ and in his saving death on the cross and mighty resurrection. God's grace is totally free. There are no conditions. And it's available to all who call upon him. Jew, Gentile, black, white, male, female, slave, free. This is the good news. It's the gospel. And this leads Paul into the text we're going to focus on this morning, starting in 3, verse 27. And here we start to find the answers to Paul's first century questions of how the church is going to work with both Jew and Gentile in it. Paul asks... In chapter 3, starting in verse 27, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. 
but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And this is an important part here at the end. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So then, we have established that there is no room for boasting, either on the Jewish side or the Gentile side, because justification comes not by works of the law, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this leads into our second question, what is the place of the Jewish law in the life of the church? Paul is very clear that he is not overthrowing the law, but upholding it. But if the law cannot justify sinners, what is the law for? Now, traditionally, theologians have made a threefold distinction of the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, referring to the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. The New Testament teaches that the first two, the ceremonial and the civil law, look forward to Christ, who ultimately fulfilled, not abolished, but fulfilled them in his coming. Paul says in our text that the law and the prophets bear witness to the fulfillment of the law in Christ. For example, the animal sacrifices were symbolic types or a foreshadowing of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And the book of Hebrews is very clear that to return to the types and shadows of the Old Covenant after the coming of Christ would be to profane the blood of the covenant and to trample underfoot the Son of God. So not only are Christians not bound to observe the ritual law, to do so would be to reject its fulfillment in Christ. Similarly, the New Testament teaches that civil law was given specifically to the nation of Israel for a specific period of time until the Messiah came. So the ritual and civil law are fulfilled by Christ and are therefore binding on Christians, uh, not binding on Christians. <laughs> but what of the moral law? Are Christians bound to keep the moral law? Let's look at what Jesus says about this question in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm quoting here. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard it, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And down at the end of the passage, Jesus says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Does this sound like Jesus is abolishing the law? No. 
What we see here is that Jesus is giving his divine authoritative interpretation of the law. He's not interpreting the law as a set of external rules to be blindly obeyed. Rather, he's saying that obedience to the law is a matter of the heart. We can't even begin to obey God's law until he changes our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not just a New Testament idea. The author of the, to the letter of the Hebrews, quoting the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, says this, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Jesus also both summarizes and interprets the law with one word, love. In Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked about what the greatest commandment is, he says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In the upper room scene in the Gospel of John, just before he is betrayed, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you what? Love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now it's not the love that was new, Love is the summary of the law, even in the Old Testament. What was new is that Christian love was a response to the love revealed in Jesus Christ, and that Jesus, as the most clear expression of God's love, was now the example of what love should look like. So are Christians bound to observe the moral law? Yes. But we are not to use the law in order to gain favor with God or to be justified in his sight. The law cannot save. Now, some of us are scratching our heads here going, well, if the law can't save or justify or make God love us, why are we bound to observe it? Well, here's an illustration that hopefully will help. A parent says to his child, Son, before dinner, I would like you to clean your room, do your homework, and take out the garbage. So the son asks, If I don't do it, will you still love me? And the parent responds, Well, of course I'll still love you. The child responds, So do I still need to obey and do my chores? What's the answer? Yes. Yes, you do. Of course you do. The purpose of the chores is not to gain the parent's love. However, Doing the chores is an expression of the love the child has for his parents. Not a perfect analogy, but hopefully it helps. Likewise, the purpose or right use of the law is not to gain God's favor or to justify us in his sight. By the way, the law couldn't justify the Jews in the Old Testament either. That's not what it was for. That's why God instituted sacrifices to atone for sin. And of course, these sacrifices are ultimately fulfilled in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So where does that leave us? 
Well, firstly, Christians are bound to observe the moral law, and we can only do so through a change of heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. The summary and the right interpretation of the law is love. And secondly, though we are bound to observe the law, the law cannot justify us, save us, or grant us favor with God. Only the grace that comes through the cross of Christ can do that, and that is by faith. So if we're not to use the law as a means of justification, what is the proper use of the law for the church? Well, here are a few ideas. Number one, the law reveals the character of God. Before giving the Ten Commandments, God says, I am the Lord. And what follows, the Ten Commandments, reveals what God is like and how he operates. The Sermon on the Mount gives further insight into the character of God and it interprets, us, interprets it correctly for us. The law in both Old and New Testaments reveals that God is good, that he is holy, that he is just, and ultimately that he is love. Secondly, when we come to face the law, the law reveals and convicts us of our sin. That's what the law is there for. Romans 3.20 says again, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And in revealing our sin, the law drives us to Christ, the one who can save. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been, that have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then here's the Jew Gentile piece. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And finally, the law provides light and a path for living for those who have been justified by faith. And I find this quote from R.C. Sproul to be incredibly helpful on this point. Listen to this. By studying or meditating on the law of God, we attend the school of righteousness. We learn what pleases God and what offends him. The moral law that God reveals in Scripture is always binding upon us. But listen to this. Our redemption is from the curse of God's law, not from the duty to obey it. We are justified not because of our obedience to the law, but in order that we may become obedient to God's law. To love Christ is to keep his commandments. To love God is to obey his law. So where does all this stuff about Jews and Gentiles and the law leave us by way of an application? Let's break it down in terms of our two initial questions. The first question is, how is this new church going to work with both Jew and Gentile in it? And if you're like me, you may be thinking that this question doesn't really apply to us anymore. We're, I think we're mostly Gentiles here. <laughs> well, here's a possible illustration. 
Imagine for some reason St. Timothy's and Sutherland were forced to start worshiping together at the same time at the same service every Sunday. Huh, already. How would that make us feel? Let's be honest. What would we Anglicans be thinking? Those Sutherland folk are not like us. We have our liturgy and our tradition. We have the church fathers and valid apostolic succession. We celebrate the Eucharist every week. We worship solemnly using vestments and candles and an altar. And Sutherland, well, they're just so casual. (laughs) They play loud rock music for worship. They bring their lattes into church. How is this going to work? But you're not off the hook either. What would, what would you folks think? You may think, those Anglicans are just so stuffy. They're so formal. They're outdated. But at Sutherland, we're much more contemporary. <laughs> Our music is inspiring and uplifting. We have freedom here. We're relevant Ooh, that one hurts me. That one hurts me. <laughs> but what are we doing here? We're boasting in things other than Christ. I'm not saying there isn't a place for different expressions of Christianity. I think there are places for different expressions. But do we think we are superior because of our respective traditions? Are we boasting or glorying in something other than Christ and his cross? If so, we need to look at that and ask the Spirit to change our hearts. And what about the second question? What is the place of the law in our lives? Historically, there have been two major errors regarding this question. The first is legalism. Legalism sees obedience to the law as the primary means of redemption. It's kind of a gospel plus. A gospel plus you can't smoke. A gospel plus you shouldn't drink alcohol. Those are just a couple couple ideas. Legalism has the appearance of Christianity, but really it's just moralism. If we're legalists, we wrongly think that we are actually able to to keep the law. And what's the result of this? Well, it can only be pride. We law keepers begin to look down on those who we think are not keeping the law. We begin to judge those poor sinners who just can't seem to get their act together. In this view, there's no room for Christ or cross or gospel. There's only boasting, which is exactly what Paul is railing against in this passage is boasting in anything other than the cross. The second error is on the other extreme, and I think this is much more common in Christianity today, and that is the error of antinomianism. Antinomians reject the law of God. If we're antinomians, we flout the law of God and use grace as a license or an excuse 
to not pursue holiness or to not obey. There's grace. I don't need to obey. There's grace. In fact, the early Christians were charged with this very error. As Paul alludes to in Romans 3, verse 8, and why not do evil that good may come? As people slanderously charge us with saying, Paul says. And then he says, people who say that, their condemnation is just. So which of these two errors do I lean towards? Which of these do you lean towards? Do we boast in our ability to keep the law? Or do we boast in our freedom from the law and use it as license to sin? Hmm. The application is here is that we need to let the law do its proper work. Let us allow it to show us God's character and his holiness. Let us allow it to reveal in us our sinfulness and in our wretchedness. And then... Let, the law, let us allow the law to drive us to Christ, who is our only hope. And then, let us ask the Holy Spirit to change our hearts, to write the law on our hearts, and to incline our hearts to keep the law of love in obedience to Christ. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to his disciples to guide them and to help them to love as he loved. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, not antinomianism. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I don't know about you, but for me, when I come in front of God's law, I feel convicted. And the more we see of God's law, the more I see of my own sin and depravity. But that makes the good news and the gospel that much brighter and more glorious. We have the cross. And the cross doesn't just, yes, it does forgive us, and it makes us sons and daughters of God, but it also makes us brothers and sisters with one another, because we're all on even footing. So St. Timothy's in Sutherland, is there any room for boasting? No, because we are one people, one church, under the banner of the cross, where there is only one level, and no room for boasting. Let us come with confidence to the cross this morning, trusting in God's mercy and joyful in his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing us your holiness and your goodness. And we thank you for the cross and for the gospel and for the good news. We thank you that we're forgiven. We thank you that we don't need to obey the law to be counted righteous in your sight, that you have done that in your Son, and that he is our hope. And we pray that your Spirit would convince us of these things, 
and allow us to live into this week trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit and that you will incline our hearts to obey your commandments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.